Right, it's good to be back with you guys this morning. You can turn to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. While you're turning there, I did want to let you know about something coming up in a couple weeks. If you have a bulletin, I'd love for you to pull out the, the card in it, multicolored card. It says Country Fair at the top. Uh, if you'll pull that out, uh, for those of you who have been here at Grace for a while, you know that uh, every fall we do a big country fair. It's kind of like a carnival. We do it here at Southwood in the parking lot. It's a whole lot of fun for, the, for families, for kids. Um, we've given you this card, though, as a reminder that this big country fair that is coming up in just a couple weeks is ultimately not for us. This is ultimately for our neighbors. This is our primary outreach for the whole fall, really probably our biggest one of the whole year. Both Anderson and Southwood are doing this together. We're going to have all kinds of booze and games and rides and all kinds of fun stuff in the parking lot. But the most important thing that we're going to have there is the gospel. We're going to present the gospel to people. We're going to invite them. We're going to invite the kids to know Jesus Christ, to find a family here at Grace Bible Church. We would love to have you guys intentionally invite people who either don't know the Lord or aren't plugged into a church home. So we've given you each one of these, but there's a whole stack. There are hundreds and hundreds more in the foyer. Grab as many as you will give out. So please, in the next couple weeks, take these cards, give them to neighbors, give them to your kids to give to their friends, bring people to this. This is an easy, easy first opportunity for people to hear the gospel and be exposed to Grace Bible Church, and that's really what this is all about. So country fair coming up, but just a reminder, it's not for us. For our neighbors. So please do take those and invite people uh, to the country fair. All right, this morning we're jumping into a breath of fresh air. For those of you who've been with us in Romans for a few weeks now, you know that we have been in a very difficult, depressing, and dark set of passages. 118 through 320 has been uh, pretty wretched uh, for all of us who have experienced these couple chapters. It's been very, very dark. But this morning is a breath of fresh air. This morning, chapter 3, verses 21 through 26, we actually get to study what many people, myself included, consider to be one of the greatest, if not the greatest, passages in the entire Bible. Greatest passages in the entire Bible. Martin Luther put it this way in his notes in his own Bible, his own copy of the Bible. In Romans 3, 21 through 26, he wrote beside it, this is the chief point in the very central place of the epistle, that is Romans, and of the whole Bible. To Luther, the passage we're looking at this morning was the big idea, the central focus of all of the Bible. He's not alone in that opinion. Leon Morris, a great New Testament scholar, actually one of the greatest New Testament scholars of the last hundred years, summed it up by saying this paragraph that we're studying today is possibly the most important paragraph ever written. So you picked a good Sunday to come to church. (laughs) We get to study a really good passage this morning. One of the greatest passages in all of the Bible. Why is it such a great passage? Well, it's all about the righteousness of God. That's been the big idea of the whole book of Romans so far. It will be the big idea of the entire book, all the way through the end of the book. It's all about the righteousness of God. So let's review that for just a moment. Big idea of the book of Romans is the righteousness of God. That is his rightness and all that he is and in all that he does. God's righteousness and all that he is. We mean that God is holy, that God is true, that God is just. Everything about God is right. There is nothing wrong in God. His character is completely, infinitely, unchangeably righteous. He is righteous in all he is. He is also righteous in all he does. Every interaction that God has with his creation is always good. It is always faithful. It was always right. 
Everything that God is and everything that God does is always right. That's the big idea of the entire book of Romans. And what we've been looking at the last four weeks, the first part of the body of the letter, is Paul's proof of God's righteousness in judgment. God is righteous in judging or condemning the human race. That was summarized at the beginning of that passage. Look in your Bibles. Flip back to chapter 1, verse 18. Chapter 1, verse 18. Paul said, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Paul's point is that God in righteousness is pouring out wrath on human sin. Now, what is wrath? We talked about that a few weeks ago. Wrath is God's anger in action. Okay, God feels anger towards sin, but he's patient. He holds back that anger. His anger builds and builds and builds, and then one day he pours forth, he acts in anger upon sin. Okay, that's God's wrath, his anger in action. And what Paul is telling us is that God's wrath is poured out against any and every human sin. Now, humanity hears that, and we don't like it. We don't want to hear this. We don't want to believe this, so we fight back. Uh, and what Paul does in the next couple chapters, because really this is a summary, 118, that's the big idea. The whole rest of what we've studied the last four weeks is Paul's attempt to, to bring humanity to the point where they're willing to accept this verse. Reminds me of when I was a kid. Um, I'm not really a country boy. I didn't grow up on a farm. I, I never raised livestock. I, I did one time in my life, only one time, never want to do it again. One time in my life I worked cattle. Uh, my grandparents had a, a couple head of cattle, just a few, and one winter they needed help vaccinating a mother and a young calf and didn't have enough hands, so they asked my dad and I to come out and help the, the cattle wrangler to move this mother and calf into a, a chute to be able to vaccinate them. And I don't know if any of you have tried to do that. Um, you would think a, a mother cow and her calf would be like the picture of tranquility and sweetness and you just want to pet them and uh, so tranquil um, until you try to make them move into a chute and get a shot. Um, they're actually really scary. I was a little kid and I'm in this pen and these cows are going nuts. And if you've ever worked cows into a chute, you know that, that the pen is designed where the, the fence narrows down. As you push the cows forward, they run out of space until they're trapped. And as we began to move these cows towards that chute, they just ran back and forth from the left to the right. These cows were trying to jump the fence. They were beating against the fence with their half ton of weight. And quickly my dad brought me out of the pen. It was no place for a little kid. But he and the wrangler just kept moving the cows forward. A step at a time, they'd charge the left, and then they'd charge the right, charge the left, charge the right. But each time they would move a step forward until they were trapped in the chute. Now that's exactly what Paul has done to the human race in 118 through 320. We hear that the wrath of God is poured out upon us, that we deserve the wrath of God, and we say no. We try to escape that, so we charge to the left. The first objection, 119 through the end of that chapter. Well, what about the person who's never heard about God? What about those who've never received the Bible? Surely they are not liable to the wrath of God. Paul says no, they, they are, because God has revealed himself in creation. All people can see who God is, see that God is right, see what God expects. Paul answers that objection. Then, then we charge to the right. Well, uh, we object. What about the people like us who are moral people? We don't commit the gross immorality and idolatry of the rest of the world. Surely we must be free of the wrath of God. No, Paul says. If you want to try to earn God's righteousness, if you want to try to earn God's approval by keeping the law, by doing good things, then what standard do you have to meet? Perfection. 
Look real quick at chapter three, verse 20. If you're trying to earn God's righteousness through your self-righteousness, through your efforts, verse 20, chapter three, verse 20, by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified or declared righteous in his sight for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. When we try to please God through our works by keeping the law, all the law does is prove what sinners we are. It just shows how guilty we are. The law cannot make us right before God because we are all sinners. So we object once again, actually a subset of humanity rejected in the passage you studied last week. The Jews raised their hands and said, wait a minute, we're Jews. We're God's chosen people. We're sons and daughters of Abraham. We're God's covenant people. Surely we are free of the wrath of God. And Paul said, no. Actually, your privileged position God's choice of you as a nation, actually, it just makes your sin even more inexcusable. It just makes you more guilty because you had all the privileges that the rest of the world could just dream about, and you still sinned. And that leads Paul to the conclusion in chapter 3. You should have looked at this last week, chapter 3, verses 10 through 12. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. And then the summary that's actually in our passage this morning, look at verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. For all have sinned, that's past tense. Every human being living has at some point in their past committed sin. All of us have done something that was not right. And as a result, present tense, we are continually falling short of the glory of God. We all, every day, fall short of God's glorious standard of righteousness. He created us to be perfect. He created us to love and be selfless and be giving. And all of us fall short of that. We all blow it. And that leads to the problem. That's where we're beginning this morning. The problem of the human race. That was what the whole first part of the book of Romans was about. God is righteous and we are not. That's the root of the problem. We serve a righteous God, but we are not righteous. We are instead unrighteous. We are sinners who deserve God's wrath. 118, God's wrath is poured out upon all human sin, and since all of us are sinners, all of us deserve wrath. All of the human race stands under the wrath of God, his condemnation of sin. That's a really dark place really depressing thing that we have learned in the first four sermons here of the book of Romans is that we are all under God's wrath and there's nothing we can do about that. All of our good works cannot change the fact that we are still sinners who deserve God's wrath. That's the bad news. Fortunately, the book of Romans did not end in chapter 3 verse 20. If it did, I would send you all home and tell you eat, drink, and be merry for there's no hope for us. But that's not where the book ended. That's why this morning's passage is so great. That's why Luther calls it the, the best passage in the whole Bible, because it gives us the solution. Solution to the problem that we couldn't fix, that God is righteous and we are not. Here is God's solution. Look with me, starting in verse 21. Paul says, But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there is no distinction. Let's pause there. It's interesting, but now. Those two words that begin our passage, Martin Lloyd-Jones was one of the greatest commentators who's ever written on Romans. He says, there are no more wonderful words in the whole of Scripture than just these two words, but now. 
God did not leave us in the desperation of our sin problem. But now God stepped in. Verse 21, God has stepped into history and done something new. Apart from the law, God has revealed to us his righteousness, his goodness, his faithfulness. He has done something new and he's done it through a person. Verse 22, through Jesus Christ. Now, to understand God's solution to our problem, I need to adjust your English translations a bit. Most of us in verse 22 have even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ, as if God's righteousness comes through our faith in Jesus. Well, faith in Jesus is very important, but Paul will will say that next for all those who believe. Uh, Faith, I think we've talked about this in the last few weeks, faith in Greek can be translated either faith or faithfulness. You have to decide from context which is in view. And in Jesus Christ is more likely of Jesus Christ. What Paul is saying is that the righteousness of God has been manifested through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. That's how the English should read. God's righteousness has been revealed through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. God's righteousness, his goodness has not been revealed through our faithfulness because we were not faithful We have done nothing but sin over the course of our lives. So God stepped in in human flesh, Jesus Christ, and was faithful for us. That is God's solution to the problem of human sin. He became a human being and was faithful for us. God was looking for a human being through whom to fix the problem of sin. And for thousands of years, human beings stepped forward and blew it. None of us proved faithful. None of us could be the solutions to sin that God had designed. And so finally, God stepped into human history himself. He put on human flesh, Jesus Christ, God in human flesh. He stepped in and did what we could not. He was faithful in our place. That's a point that scripture draws out in many places. I'll share just a couple key passages with you. These are worth writing down and going back and reading uh, or memorizing. These are some of the best passages in scripture. Hebrews 7, 26. For it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, that is Jesus, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. What the author of Hebrews is saying is that Jesus is unlike every other human being. Jesus is the one and only human being to be faithful in life. In life, he was completely faithful to God. He did nothing but obey God. There was no sin in his life. There was nothing that was not perfectly righteous. Jesus was as righteous as God was because Jesus is God. So Jesus was faithful in life. He was also faithful in death. You've seen this passage before, Philippians 2.8. Being found in appearance as a man, he, that is Jesus, humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus was faithful to God in death. When Jesus went to the cross, it was actually an act of obedience. I don't know if you knew that. When Jesus went to the cross, it wasn't first and foremost for us. It was first and foremost for God the Father. That's what the cross really is. It's, it's less about us. It's more about Jesus' faithfulness to God the Father. God the Father had, had commanded that Jesus die, and Jesus did. In faithfulness, he went to the cross. Jesus was faithful in life and in death. That's how God is going to fix the problem of sin. He needed a man who would be faithful to be the solution to sin. And when no man stepped forward, God himself stepped in our place. God became that man, that perfectly faithful man, to become the solution to sin. Now, how is it that Jesus' faithfulness fixes our sin problem? That's what the rest of the passage is going to unfold. 
Okay, the faithfulness of Jesus is a solution, but how does that actually fix our sin problem? Paul's going to tell us that, and we're going to get into some theology here, some pretty deep words. So if you'll hang with me, let's look at the next couple verses. How is it that Jesus' faithfulness fixes our sin problem? Look starting in verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Pretty huge words here. Two really big words that I want to look at. What Paul is telling us is that the faithfulness of Jesus saves us from our sin problem by doing two things for us. The first is redemption. The faithfulness in life and faithfulness in death of Jesus Christ gives us Redemption. That's a really significant word biblically. What does it mean? Well, we've talked about redemption before, but I want to review that for you. Redemption is actually a common word in Scripture, particularly in the Old Testament. If you read the Old Testament, you see redemption or redeem over and over again. And the basic idea means to deliver or liberate someone from a desperate situation. That's what Redemption means to deliver someone from a desperate situation. That deliverance may require the payment of a cost. You may have to pay a price to deliver that person, or maybe not. What's true in every case is that redemption is always by a third party. It's always by somebody stepping in graciously to deliver you from a situation from which you could not deliver yourself. It's a lot like um, if you've ever bought an animal out of the pound, that is redemption. Julie and I, before we had kids, we wanted something to play with, so we went and got a cat from the pound, a little cat named Maggie, a little tiny kitten, uh, who, who was in this shelter. Um, and, and when we went and, and checked out Maggie, um, she was well taken care of there in the shelter, but uh, she, she was basically a prisoner in the pound, right? She was in a cage. Um, she didn't want to be in the cage. She wanted out of the cage, but she couldn't deliver herself from the cage. There was nothing she could do to get out. And sadly, if no one would have ever rescued Maggie, she probably would have been, had to have been put down eventually. So Maggie was in captivity, literally in, in the pound, and she was also potentially in captivity to death if no one would have rescued her. But then Julie and I went and found her, um, and this little cat, Maggie, she was very smart. She went right over to my wife and buried her head in her lap and began to purr. And that was it. Maggie was pretty much redeemed at that point. We, we paid the price to the pound. We just gave them the money to pay the price to purchase Maggie out of captivity, and she came home with us. She was now liberated, not because she escaped the pound, not because she set herself free, but because we stepped in in grace and set her free. That's redemption. That's how redemption works. Someone steps in to deliver you from a desperate situation that you could not free yourself from. Now, throughout Scripture, the most common redeemer is, of course, God. In the Old Testament, he redeems his people from uh, slavery in Egypt, from exile, from the threat of enemies. He redeems his people from lots of desperate earthly situations. In the New Testament, redemption works the same way, but God delivers us from something even more serious. In the New Testament, it's not about liberation from earthly slavery or earthly enemies. It's about something eternal, something much more serious. We're told what it is in Ephesians 1, 7. In him, that is Jesus, we have redemption through his blood. That is the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. 
When Paul says that Jesus redeems us, what he means is forgiveness of sins. That's what he's equating here. Redemption is liberation from the penalty of sin. Remember, that was what 118 through 320 was all about. Our sins, all of us have committed sins. Our sins put us under the wrath of God. That's a desperate situation if there ever was one. And there's nothing that we can do to free ourselves from that situation. So in grace, Jesus stepped in. Jesus redeemed us, set us free, liberated us from captivity to the wrath of God, from captivity to the penalty of our sins. And how did he do that? Well, through his blood. Jesus' own blood, his own life, was the payment required to set us free. We were slaves. Jesus paid in his own blood to set us free out of grace, simply out of goodness, out of grace. He paid the price to set us free. That point is made in one of the most significant passages you'll find in the book of 1 Peter. Really, really significant passage. 1 Peter 1, 18 to 19. Knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your fathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. That's the great difference between Julie and I and the pound and what Jesus has done. All we did is exchange some money. It cost us almost nothing. Jesus paid for our redemption with himself, with his own blood. He shed his own life to pay the price to set us free from sin. That's redemption. So how does Jesus' faithfulness fix our sin problem? Well, first, through redemption. He sets us free from a situation that we could not deliver ourselves from, and he does so through the payment of his own blood. That's the first part of what Paul tells us. Second part, second A thing that Jesus does to set us free from the problem of sin is justification. That's the other key word in verse 24, justification. What does that word mean? That's a a challenging word. You see that also often in Scripture. Justification, when you hear that word, to justify or justification, you should think courtroom. That's where that word comes from, the courtroom of God. It's legal terminology. To justify someone does not mean to make them righteous, like in an ethical sense. You make them a righteous person. No, that's not what happens in a court of law. Uh, It also doesn't mean to treat them as righteous even though they're not. No, that's not what you do in a court of law. To justify someone means to declare them righteous. It's when the judge acquits someone who is charged. He says, I declare you innocent. I dismiss the charges against you. That's justification. You declare someone to be in the right in the eyes of the court. So when Paul says that we are justified, what it means is that in the courtroom of God, in God's universal courtroom, he looks down at us and he levels his gavel on the bench and he declares, you are in my eyes righteous. You are acquitted of all charges. Now, fortunately, God can never go back on his word. So when he declares that about you, it is settled for eternity. God can't change his mind tomorrow. Now, when he declares you to be righteous in his sight, that settles it. There is no double jeopardy in the courtroom of God. You can't be recharged for your crimes. No, you are declared innocent. God declares you to be righteous. But now we have a problem. As we try to understand justification, now we have a problem. You see, God in justification declares us righteous, but we just said we're not righteous, are we? No, we're not. 118 through 320 proved clearly we are not righteous. We don't deserve that declaration. So how is it that God, who is the perfectly righteous judge, who never overlooks sin, who perfectly brings about justice in all of the universe, how is it 
that he can declare us righteous. If a human judge just did that, imagine that a a murderer is brought into a courtroom. Someone who clearly murdered another human being and, and a judge looks at him and says, you know what, I declare you innocent. I don't feel like bothering with this. I declare you innocent. What would we claim? We would say, what a mistrial of justice. That, that, can't, that can't go on. That's horrible. The judge overlooked that sin. That judge would be unrighteous, would be corrupt. Well, God can't do that. God cannot compromise his righteousness. So how is it that God can be righteous and declare us righteous when we're not? Well, that's explained in the next two verses. Next two verses, look with me, starting at verse 25. Let's pick it back up in 24. But being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God he passed over the sins previously committed for the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. We need to look at that word propitiation. That is the solution. How is it that God can still be righteous and can declare sinners like us to be righteous? This solution is propitiation. But what does that word mean? Propitiation goes back to the Old Testament. Literally here in Romans, the word means mercy seat. It's actually describing a, a piece of furniture in the Old Testament temple. The mercy seat was the cover that sat over the Ark of the Covenant and the Holy of Holies of the Tabernacle was the mercy seat or the propitiation was the name of that cover. Now, if you don't know about the Ark of the Covenant, let me describe that to you. In the Old Testament, the Israelites were given some really important stuff by God. Most important thing that he handed to the Israelites, an actual physical object, were the stone tablets of the Mosaic Law. Moses carried these stone tablets down from the mountain. They were God's commands written on stone. And God commanded the Israelites to take those tablets and place them in a very big box. That's what they did. That was the Ark of the Covenant. And then to cover them with the mercy seat and then set them in the Holy of Holies, the most holy part of the temple in Jerusalem. Now, as God would look down at the nation of Israel year after year, he would look down and he would see that big box. He would see that big box filled with those stone tablets of the law. And he would see all of those laws that in grace he gave to the nation of Israel to tell them what righteousness is, to tell them how to behave. And he would remember all the sins they had committed, all the times they had violated every command on those stone tablets, and God would grow angry. Because that's how God responds to sin. He would look down at the Ark of the Covenant, he would be reminded of the sins of his people, and he would grow angry at them. His wrath would begin to build towards them. Fortunately, there was a solution. One day a year, they had a big festival called the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. They still celebrate it today, Yom Kippur. And on Yom Kippur, the Jewish people would gather in Jerusalem, and they would gather two goats and a bull, these sacrificial animals. They had to be spotless, free of blemishes. And the people would confess their sins of the previous year. Every sin they could think of, they would confess to God as they placed their hands on the animals. They would literally place their hands on those sacrificial animals and confess their sins. And in that act, God would transfer their guilt to the animals, and then he would punish the animals in their place. The people would sacrifice, put to death those animals, because death must result after sin. And so those animals would be put to death, and then on the culmination of Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, the high priest would take the blood of those sacrificial animals, go into the Holy of Holies, which he could only do on that one day of the year, and take the blood and sprinkle it over the mercy seat. 
He would cover the the propitiation, the mercy seat, with the blood of the sacrificial animals. And for the entire following year, 365 days, God will look down at that mercy seat and see that blood, and his wrath would be turned away. That's what the mercy seat did. That's how sacrifices worked in the Old Testament. God would look down and see the blood over the Ark of the Covenant and that sacrificial blood would satisfy his wrath. That's the basic idea of the word propitiation, to satisfy the wrath of God, to turn away his righteous punishment of sin. That is what propitiation is all about. Now, throughout the Old Testament, it was goats and bulls that were being sacrificed to accomplish that. In the New Testament, God has done something better, far better. Because every year you had to sacrifice these animals, now God has done something once for all, one sacrifice for all time to propitiate, to take care of the sins of God's people. And here's what it is. It's Jesus' death. That's detailed in the book of Hebrews, chapter 9, starting in verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood, he entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling those who have been defiled sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Here's what Paul is saying. How can God be righteous and yet declare sinners righteous? The way is through the death of Christ. Jesus took our punishment in our place. God is not a corrupt judge. There has not been a miscarriage of justice. God rendered perfect justice on human sin, but who took that justice? Jesus, not us. That's what the cross is about. It's the place where Jesus took God's wrath rather than us. You can think about it this way. God's justice is like a bow, and his wrath is the arrow. And he's pulling that bow back year after year after year until finally he releases that wrath at the human race, and at the last moment, Jesus steps in. Jesus steps in and takes the arrow of God's wrath in our place. That's what Jesus has done. He has died in our place. He took God's wrath in our place. The son of the judge himself stepped down to take our punishment for us. That's why I think one of the greatest word plays in the entire Bible, the end of verse 26, because Jesus took God's wrath in our place, God may be the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Just and justifier. That's the solution. Just and justifier. God can be just. He can be righteous. And yet he can be gracious. He can be the justifier of the one who believes. In the cross, the justice of God and the grace of God are united. God's love and God's holiness are brought together in the cross. God does not compromise either. He does not have to compromise his righteousness or compromise his love because Jesus died for us. To me, this is the primary proof to me of the truth of Christianity. Every other religion out there cannot explain how a righteous and good God could forgive human sin. How does he do that? If he's righteous, if he's truly a good judge, then he must punish it. So what does God do? What's the solution? Only Christianity has a solution. God himself took the punishment. God himself took on human flesh to take the punishment of sin in our place. That's why Christianity is true and everything else is false. 
God is righteous and can declare us righteous because Jesus died in our place. And finally, how does that payment that Jesus made accrue to us? How do we benefit from these things, justification and redemption? Well, we benefit through faith. This gift from Jesus, the faithfulness of Jesus in life and death, is given simply to all who believe. Just as all have sinned, all who believe can be saved by the death of Jesus Christ. It is offered as a free gift by grace. Grace is to receive something good that you don't deserve. You did not merit it. You did not work for it. It's given to you freely. Freely you receive the faithfulness of Jesus to fix your sin problem. Now, that's what we're actually going to celebrate this morning as we prepare communion. If you guys will get it ready. Communion is the remembrance or the memorial of the fact that the problem that we could not fix, our sin, the sin that we had committed against God, God himself has fixed for us by sending his son to die in our place. Communion is not just a drink and something to eat. Communion is a remembrance, a celebration of the fact that for us to be forgiven, it costs the body and blood of God's own son. In grace, he stepped in to our place. Now, this morning as the men pass the elements, what I'd encourage you to do is just spend some time even looking at this slide. I know there's a lot of big theology words here, but just thinking about the incredible extent of grace that God has given to us. The lengths that God has gone to on our behalf to set us free from sin. God himself took on human flesh to take the wrath of God in our place. Spend some time just thanking God this morning. So as the plates pass, I would encourage you just to spend some time in prayer, silently thanking the Lord for what he has done. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Heavenly Father, we come before you in thanksgiving this morning. Lord, we all deserve your wrath and there is nothing we can do to change that fact. We are all sinners, Lord. But Father, we come before you this morning to celebrate and to rejoice over the fact that you have provided a solution to the problem of sin. You have fixed what we have broken, Lord, by becoming a human being, by sending your Son in human flesh to live a perfectly faithful life and to die a perfectly faithful death in our place. Thank you that Jesus is our propitiation, that he has satisfied the wrath that we deserve, that he has turned it away, Lord, so that we can be forgiven, so that you can justify us in your righteousness. You can declare us righteous even though we're not because Jesus was righteous in our place. And thank you, Lord, that you have redeemed us from sin, that you have set us free from the bondage of the penalty of sin. Lord, thank you for the hope that we have in you, Lord. I pray for any person in this room, Lord, who, who hasn't yet experienced that joy of knowing that their sins are forgiven, that they can be righteous in your sight. Lord, I pray that this morning they would come to understand and believe 
that Jesus died in their place, that there's nothing that they need to do to try to earn your love. There's nothing they need to try to do to earn your approval. It is completely theirs as a free gift if they will simply believe that Jesus died for their sins and rose from the dead. Help them, Lord, to believe. And we pray for all of us, Lord, as we get ready for the country fair in just a couple weeks, Lord, please help us to take this good news, this great news, to all who will hear. Help us to share the great news that Jesus has died to fix the problem of human sin. Help us to be agents of the gospel to everyone in our lives, Lord. Lord, thank you so much. You're so good to us. Thank you that your love and your holiness, your grace and your justice meet in the cross of your Son. In his name we pray. Amen.